here before the end of roll. And uh, we're going to spend time looking and remembering about the passion and the events that happened after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles open, we're going to be looking at John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. And with that, if you would uh, bow with me for a word of prayer again. Father God, we come before you with your word open in our laps. And Lord, this is not a book of just historical value, but it's the living and active word of God. And Lord, I pray today many here have come seeking out answers, seeking out understanding of this holiday that we call Easter. And Lord, I pray that you would speak in a powerful way, that my words would be your words and that I would not be a distraction as we look to this incredible passage where the closest and dearest friends of your son, Jesus Christ, learned of the greatest news that this world has ever known, that you are not dead in a grave, but you have risen just as you said. And so, Lord, as we open this, I pray for minds of understanding, hearts that yearn to know the truth. Because as Jesus said, we can know the truth and the truth shall set us free. So, Lord, be with us in this time. We ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1815, Europe was in a state of disaster. Napoleon. I'm getting a whole bunch of smiles from everybody in the back. That means I'm not uh, on. So let me double check and make sure I'm on here. And I never knew it would be used for the Lord's glory. But in 1815, Europe was in a state of disaster. Napoleon Bonaparte, of course, was ravaging all of Europe with the French army. And Great Britain stood in fear and bewilderment about what was going to transpire. Great Britain had exhausted most of its army trying to uh, keep uh, Napoleon off of British soil. So they sent the Duke of Wellington to command the Allied forces for one final stop of the French army. They would find themselves about seven miles south of Brussels, Belgium, in a town called Waterloo. And, of course, the famous Battle of Waterloo would pursue then at that point. And what began to happen is Wellington with the Allied forces and Napoleon with the French forces fought a huge battle with more than 300,000 troops and artillery being used. And for over a course of a couple days, the battle raged on, with Britain losing many losses of life. And all of Britain want to know, would this be the end as they knew life to be? And then they had a course of systems of lights to tell across the English Channel what was going on in the battle. And a courier system would continue to tell. And the, sign, the light signs would say, 5,000 lost. 10,000 lost. We've lost so much artillery. And Britain began to become depressed. The news began to spread. And the final message in the night, as fog was coming over the channel, were two words. The two words read this, Wellington defeated. And at that point, Britain fell into a great depression. For a full day, panic swept through the nation of Great Britain. The stock market at that time, the Board of Trade, they called it collapsed. There was looting and masses of people fleeing their homes, knowing that if they lost at Waterloo, it was only a matter of time before the French and Napoleon 
would find themselves across the English Channel on English soil. So for an entire day, a nation scattered in fear and anguish. But on that next June morning, as the fog dissipated and no fog was able to now hamper the message, a private from the British Army got up that morning and he looked out to the French side of the English Channel and there was a flickering of a light as the sun was coming up over the horizon. And the message was not only two words through their Morris Light Code, but it was three. And it said, Wellington defeated Napoleon. It's amazing what one word does to a message, doesn't it? Great Britain now had a message of hope and of a future, not one of dismay or defeat. This was not a time where they would flee and run in fear and being scared for their lives. It would be one of great victory. What a story to complement the story of the week that we've had this Easter week. The disciples have been on a whirlwind, a roller coaster of a week. Last Sunday, they would have watched their Jesus, the one that they had spent years spending time with and talking with and learning from and and just growing under his care. They would see him ride in on a donkey into Jerusalem. And the gospel writers say that all of Jerusalem was amazed. There was a buzz going on. And as they enter in with Jesus, they hear the cries, Hosanna, loud Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they had some intimate moments Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday, spending time together. And then they go to an upper room on Thursday night and they spend time of what we call the Last Supper. And Jesus is there, and that's when He washes the disciples' feet, and He speaks about what is going on. But something goes amiss. Something begins to go wrong. They start hearing these rumblings of one who would betray. And they see Judas going and doing things. They're not sure what he's up to, but he's off doing things away from the other eleven. And then Jesus said, let's go to the garden. And they go to the garden of Gethsemane. And then... As he tells them to pray, they fall asleep and late Thursday night into Friday morning, a group of Roman soldiers with the chief priests and the Pharisees come and they arrest Jesus. And the Bible tells us through the Gospels that the disciples scattered. We looked last week at Jesus and our deliverance from our suffering and the suffering and the abuse that he had from the scourging and the crucifixion that took place on Friday but I wonder what the thought was of the disciples on that Saturday. I don't know what you did yesterday. I'm sure it was full of different Easter activities and preparation. But that was not the case that first Easter. We know from the Gospel writers that the disciples stayed far off, away from the activity of Friday. So it would probably be the case that they found themselves in some room of a home, weeping and wondering what had transpired. But on that Sunday, as the sun set on that cross of Jesus on Friday, the message seemed to say, just like the British read, Jesus defeated. But on that Sunday, the Sunday that we celebrate today, we miss a word and the disciples missed it as well. 
And on that Sunday, it said Jesus defeated death. And that's why we're here this morning. We're here because God has raised this Jesus to be the first among the dead, to give us victory because we do not mourn a date of infamy that we talked about last week, but we celebrate a day of great rejoicing because our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, has risen. And it's amazing at the Battle of Waterloo in uh, uh, Brussels, near Brussels, Belgium, It's amazing to know that that was the last battle that Napoleon would ever be general in. He would go and run in exile because he had been defeated. Let me tell you something. Because of what Jesus did in the grave and being raised from the dead, the enemy, the devil, would not be set back, but he would be once and for all stopped in his tracks. But why is it that we find the disciples running around in fear and bewilderment? Did they forget the message? We know as we look to the Gospels that they had heard the message. Jesus said, I will tear down this temple and rebuild it in three days. And the Bible says that he was speaking of his own death and resurrection. Did they miss that? Did he say that he would not go to the cross? Did he not say numerous times in the gospel that he would rise from the grave? Where did they miss it? I will tell you, before we start thinking too harshly of the disciples, it's true of us as well. We so many times misunderstand this idea of Easter. And so what have we done as Americans? We have created customs and characters within this holiday that takes center center place over Christ and what Christ has articulated to you and to me, we've decided not to listen to, you know, this phenomenon of of not listening or or not uh, understanding what one is trying to say is seen in the international business world as well. As our world has become smaller and as major corporations have uh, gone worldwide, the priority of getting a message across is of great importance. The priority of making sure that as I speak in English, those that are Chinese and those that are uh, from France and Spain and all the different countries of the world, that they would understand in their own tongue what I, a corporation here in America, would try to sell to them. But as a result of this, just like the disciples and us in the Easter holiday and celebration, we find ourselves mistranslating what Jesus said. I found on the Internet some of these misunderstandings that have happened as a result of companies trying to make new frontiers into countries. When Schweppes tonic water, you've heard of it, was introduced in Italy, it did not sell very well because tonic in the Italian language means toilet water. So go ahead and pour yourself a bottle and enjoy it. When Coca-Cola was introduced in China, it was first rendered Kikokila, which means bite the wax tadpole. (laughs) Or it could mean, depending on what area of China you're from, female horse with wax. Kentucky Fried Chicken found trouble in China with their motto that said, our food is what? Finger licking good. Well, in the Chinese language, 
It means eat your fingers off. I'm all wired up here. When Pepsi went into, uh, gosh, Keith has got a small head. All right. Turn me off in monitor three if you can. In Taiwan, when Pepsi came out with the slogan, come alive with the Pepsi generation, it was translated that Pepsi, if you drink Pepsi, it will bring your dead ancestors back from the grave. And finally, when GM introduced the Chevy Nova in Argentina, sales were low because Nova in Spanish means it won't go. It's amazing what is lost in translation. And sadly, just like the disciples, you and I have lost the meaning of there in the translation. Is it Jesus' fault? Absolutely not. It is our unwillingness to lose us has to say, because the story of Easter, the news of Easter is the story of deliverance. I was told by one of our uh, members of our church that I've been seeing the gospel of John. And he said, well, I look forward to when you teach verse by verse out of the book of Numbers. That will be good to watch on TV. And then he said, are we going to see clips of the movie Deliverance? I said, I don't think so. I don't see any biblical application from that movie. But we've learned about the story of deliverance. I want you to look to your outlines and look to John 20 as we learn about the deliverance, not from our suffering this week, but from our sin. And it involves three things that you will find in your outline. The first one is, is that deliverance from our sin requires finding success in overcoming great obstacles. Finding success in overcoming great obstacles. John chapter 20. We talked last week about John 19. Then we spoke about it being for us as disciples and followers of Christ, no matter even though that it it took away our sin, that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ for the believer, would be a time of great sadness and would be a low point, if you will, on the uh, scale of Jesus' ministry because of what he would have to endure. But in one chapter, as chapter 20 opens, we go from pain and suffering to victory and success. You know, Webster defines success as the following. It is the achievement of something desired, planned, Or attempted. You know, as I thought about success, our world is hungry for success. We want success in our relationships. We want success with our money. We want success in our families. We want success with our health. We want success for the Chicago Cubs. We want success. That's a great place for an amen. But anyway, we want success. And you know, the amazing thing is, is that even in churches today, we talk about success because that's what the human desire is, that we would be successful. Why? I believe it comes from the American slogan of the American way of life that we would. um, uh, What's the American slogan I'm looking for here? Life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. What a definition of success. That in all things we would find enjoyment, fulfillment. 
But sadly, so many churches today talk about it separate from the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. We cannot have success in the greatest obstacles that you and I will ever face without going to that tomb and looking that Jesus Christ is not there, but that He is risen, just as He has said. The empty tomb is the only hope for our world. The empty tomb is the only thing that will take care of our greatest issues in life. I want to give you a couple examples of that for a moment. In the first space that you have under point number one, we see that in John 19, we see that Jesus overcomes our suffering. Our suffering. We know that Jesus endured severe pain and suffering in John 19 so that we as believers in that empty tomb would no longer have to suffer as a result of our sins. Nor does suffering have to lead us to a place of despair. But sadly in our world, we're full. Our world is full of suffering. Our church, even here, full of godly and lovely people, find themselves in places of suffering. Now Christ said that in this life we'll have troubles. But we should not fall prey to just finding ourselves suffering despondently in this world. Because we have an advocate, and his name is Jesus, who has suffered. And there are people here today who are suffering physical ailments. You've got one who has gone before you. Jesus Christ endured the most horrific death a man could face. And he did it. And he was victorious. You may be suffering from emotional struggles and concerns. Maybe someone has let you down. The love of your life has left you. Maybe your friends have all deserted you. Jesus Christ has been there. And He has suffered along with you. Because He lost all His friends. And all those thousands that followed Him, they deserted Him. And just a couple of ladies and one of the young disciples was there to the very end. But maybe you're struggling spiritually. Maybe you're here today and you're saying... I don't get this God thing. I don't get this Bible thing or this Jesus thing. He hasn't done anything for me. I feel like He's let me down, that He's not around when I need Him. Well, I'll tell you, Jesus suffered that as well. Because when He hung on that cross, the Bible makes it clear that that perfect relationship that He had with the Father, it says that His Father turned His back and forsook His Son. Jesus was all alone. I don't know where you're suffering today, but Jesus has been there. And the empty tomb says to your suffering today that Jesus is victorious. And so can you be victorious in that suffering. A second thing we see is that Jesus has delivered us from our sorrow, from our sorrow. At the end of John 19, we see a small group of people, again, some ladies and the Apostle John, the one who is writing the Gospel of John. And we find themselves weeping at the cross of Christ. And we can only speculate that the disciples were doing the same thing, whether they were together or apart, that their Savior was gone. And they were weeping. And like Mary, if you look in verse 13 and verse 15 of John chapter 20, we too find ourselves filled with sorrow. Twice Mary is asked, once by the angels and once by Jesus Himself, why are you crying? 
You know, it hasn't taken me long as a leader within a church to know that even the most godly individuals within our place struggle with the issue of suffering and sorrow. You know, sorrow has hit my life. It's been a while since true sorrow has impacted me. When my brother passed away some 17 years ago, sorrow was big in our family's life. And there are many here today who are dealing with sorrow, maybe not from the loss of a loved one, where these holidays are very difficult to deal with. But maybe you're struggling because of some emotional uh, breakup of a relationship or maybe some sort of issue or struggle that you face. The Bible makes it clear that all of us at one day will deal with this issue of sorrow. And what Jesus is telling us is, though we cry, we see a completely different outlook in Mary's life when she was sorrowful the moment that Jesus appeared to her. Because Jesus will deliver us from our sorrow. Paul commands us not to grieve like the rest of the world, but to have hope because Jesus says that for all believers, this world is not the end. And if we were to breathe our last and the brainwaves would stop functioning even at this moment, that if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Apostle Paul says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. So when we see a brother or sister laying before us in a coffin, we rejoice. My family looks forward to a reunion with one of our own because he's in the presence today of Almighty God. And he is looking deep into the eyes of the risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus delivers us from our sorrow. Next, he overcomes our shame. He overcomes our shame. John tells us about Mary. But then he goes on and he says that there's an encounter with two other disciples at the end of John chapter 20. We hear about an interaction that he has with a guy named Thomas. And of course, Thomas is the doubting one. Thus, the term being a doubting Thomas. And Thomas doubts that Jesus Christ has been raised from the grave. And he doubts it even though the other ten disciples say, we have seen him, we've talked with him, we've interacted. And Thomas says, no, it hasn't happened. Unless I see him, I will not believe. And then we know that Peter, good old Peter, the one that seems to always be in the middle of the action, we know that when Jesus was arrested, he ran off and deserted Christ, just like the rest. But just as Jesus had prophesied, what happens? He denies Christ three times, even to a little peasant girl. And he says, I don't know him. Two of his closest followers fail. And how true it is of us, because I have seen and I know from personal experience how we fail as human beings. And what comes with failure? Being ashamed. And Jesus wants to deliver you from that. Because in John 20, what we're going to see in the next couple weeks is that Jesus doesn't come in and go to Peter and John or Peter and uh, Thomas and say, hey, you dummies, you missed it. You blew it. You should be ashamed of yourself. You call yourself a follower of mine? I spent three years with you. Come on, knuckleheads. Let's clean it up. He doesn't say that. But there's restoration and there's healing. I don't know what you've done yesterday or 10 years ago or 20 years ago. 
Maybe you're sitting there and saying, I've blown it, Tim. You don't know how bad I've screwed my life up. Let me tell you something. Jesus can deliver you from that shame. And He can take it away. And He's the only one that can no amount of uh, world's counsel and uh, going and being a part of therapy sessions. While those are important, those will never take it all away because guilt will remain. But Jesus is the only one that I know that has the power to wipe away sin and guilt that comes from it. And finally, we see that the resurrection of Christ overcomes our sin. It overcomes our sin. Why do we suffer as humans? Why are we sorrowful? What causes us to be ashamed? All of these are because of sin. And I will tell you that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ defeated once and for all ages the power of sin and death. I can only imagine on that day, that first Easter Sunday, and Terrell Owens would have been proud at the end zone dance that was done by the angels in heaven. I can only imagine the celebration as that stone was rolled away and Jesus walked out as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords victorious. Paul announces this victory in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 55 through 57. After a chapter of dealing with the greatness of the uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ, he finishes the chapter by saying this, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But listen to what he says. Thanks be to God. Because He has given us the victory through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus went to the cross. Jesus went to that tomb for the issues that you and I face. And not just secondary issues, but He rose from the grave to deliver us from those issues so that we can have a right standing with our God in heaven. But how do we get there? Second point this morning. It involves realizing, being realized through a startling Observation. Our deliverance from sin is realized through a startling observation. How do we get there? It involves looking and believing. Let's look at John chapter 20 in more depth this morning. In John 20, we see that uh, Mary goes, Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb where Joseph of Arimathea had laid Jesus. And she goes on the first day of the week, that is Sunday, and she finds when she gets to the tomb that the stone has been rolled away. So she runs and goes and tells the disciples, at least we know Peter and John are made aware of it. Now the text tells us that they run and they head to the tomb. It says that John outruns Peter. That's one of the reasons why you'll always see from that verse that Peter in every movie is a little like Tim on the chunkier side. And I think it's kind of funny that John shares that. I outran Peter. Just let's write that down. And God thought it would be good to have it inspired in his word. We're not sure all of what that means. I just think it's kind of humorous. Hey, Peter, never forget. It's in the book. I outran you to the tomb. But it says that amongst these three individuals, three observations are made. And I want to look at them because they are not clear in the English translation. So if you underline or circle in your Bible, I'm going to give you some Greek to help us understand this better. But look at verse 3 through 9 in John 20. 
So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciples, speaking of John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. It says he saw and believed. It says they did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise. Let's stop there for a moment. When Peter and John make it to the tomb, the Scripture says that they both saw. And every time that it says they looked into the tomb, in our English Bibles, it uses the three-letter word S-A-W. But three different Greek words are used by John in this text, and it's important for us to understand that it's not just the same looking and seeing. In verse 5, the word that John uses when it says that John saw is the word blepo. And the word blepo means to clearly see a material object. What it literally means is that he went and he looked into the grave and he saw that the grave was empty. It would be me saying that I saw the congregation. I just looked up and I saw. I saw people here and you are in a church, thus making you a congregation. But then it says in verse 6 that Peter goes to the tomb and he goes in and he saw. The word saw in verse 6 is the theorio, theorio, which means to contemplate, to observe, or to scrutinize. This is the first types of observation I want to look at. Because John tells us that Peter observes with curiosity. He observes with curiosity. As he looks in, he's trying to make up in his mind what is going on. He looks and he says, all right. Something ain't right. He looks to the empty tomb. He says, Jesus is supposed to be there. We're at the right tomb. The stone has been rolled away. Something is wrong. And he can't make up what is going on. He says, I can't figure it out. And I'll tell you, there are some today who are just like Peter. You have come this morning and you've heard us sing and and you say, man, all this talk about this empty tomb and I don't know what to make of it. What's going on? Is this a story? Is this truth? What is it? And he finds himself curious about Jesus. There are many here today who are curious about Jesus. You hear all the things about his life and death, but you're not sure what to make of this resurrection thing. You're not willing just to cast it aside, but you don't know what to do with it. Could it be true? That's the way Peter looks at it. Next, we see John enters the picture again. And it says that John observes carefully. We see this careful observation. Look at verse 8. It tells us that John went into the tomb and that he saw and believed. The word saw there in the Greek literally is the word eido, meaning to understand, to perceive the significance of. This is far more than just a look that Peter had. But this is looking and saying, all right, I'm in the empty tomb and there are the grave clothes, but there's no body. Something is going on. Well, that's where Peter was at, right? But what John says is God is up to something. 
The idea is that there is a supernatural event going on. Still didn't understand what had transpired, just like Peter. But he's digging deeper and he's saying, all right, God is up to something. Have you ever been there before where you're sitting there saying, I don't know how to explain this. I don't know what to make of this, but I know that God is up to something. This is deeper than just being curious. I will tell you that it seems in our world that even though we don't want Jesus in our schools or in our government or want Jesus involved in any facet of public life, it is amazing the amount of broadcast time that is dedicated to Jesus this week of Easter. And the question is all about who is this Jesus? What do we make of him? I will tell you, our world, I think, is somewhat like John. Because as they look to the tomb, they say, all right, we're not sure what to make of it. But there is something of significance here. Why would millions upon millions of people gather into churches all across the world to worship something that is false? There has to be some validity or credibility to it. But look at what happens when you observe like that the empty tomb. In verse 9, it says they did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. There's some like Peter here. There's even more like John who say there's something about this Jesus. I can't put my finger on it. But Jesus was more than just a man. He was more than just a person like you and me. There's significance to this thing called the resurrection. I can't put my finger on it, though. And I'll tell you, you know what happens when you observe the resurrection like that? Look at what it says in verse 10. It says that they went away back to their home. You know, there are people today who will come and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he rose from the grave. And you'll say, wow, there's something to that. But we'll go home and we'll turn on the ball game. We'll go and we'll watch through the oven door, the ham baking with all its juices. And we'll sit there and we'll forget about what we've heard or what we've seen. And that's what Peter and John do. They walk away and they go back home. But there's one other observation that I want to hit on within this realization. And that is the picture of Mary. The Bible tells us in the other Gospels that Mary and, and the other uh, Gospels speak of other women being at the place. John just speaks of Mary in this text. That they go and they tell the disciples. But the other gospel writers, Mark and Luke, say that the disciples would not believe them. In the book of Matthew, I believe it says that two men on the road to Emmaus are walking and Jesus appears to them. And they head back and they tell the disciples, we've hung out with Jesus. But again, the disciples do not believe. I will tell you that if you are like Peter and John and walk away, that is not a saving faith, a saving trust in Jesus Christ. But look at what it says about Mary, because Mary observes completely, completely. Look at what it says. Even though Mary was distraught, it says she's crying, just like all the other disciples were. There are three differences with Mary and the other two disciples. Three things I see in the text. First of all, Mary wanted to know where Jesus was. Peter and John don't ask that question. Number two, Mary would not stop looking until she found Jesus. And number three, Mary was willing to go to great lengths to draw near to Christ once again. Look at verse 13. 
It says the angels asked, woman, why are you crying? She says they have taken my Lord away and I don't know where they have put him. She goes to the gardener at the end of verse 15 and she says, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him. She's saying, I'm not leaving this tomb until I find out some information about this Jesus. But look at what it says. It says in verse 15 that she continued to look. The gardener who was Jesus, she thought it was the gardener, but in fact it was the risen Jesus. He asked, who are you looking for? What a question for all of us today. Jesus asking us that same question, who are you looking for this morning? And look at what Mary says to the gardener. Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him. Listen to what it says, and I will get him. Mary must have been a large Russian woman to think that she could have gone and gotten Jesus. But you know, she didn't care. She was going to use everything in her power to bring Jesus to herself. One of the commentaries says, what love is this that Mary would go? And he says in speculating, put Jesus on her shoulder and walk him back to a proper place of burial. That's the observation that we need to center our minds on. The way we observe this Easter in that empty tomb is by searching out the truths of Christ and searching until we find Him. Don't stop in your pursuit of Christ. The Bible says that we will find Him when we search Him, search for Him with all our hearts. Are you searching the truths of Easter with all your hearts? Are you just saying, hey, you know what, Tim? It's almost 11. Let's close this thing out so I can get back on to my celebration today. That is not the observation that brings you eternal life in Jesus Christ. Don't stop short in your pursuit of Christ. Don't allow your Easter plans to take away from knowing and understanding what Easter is all about and what that empty tune means. The Bible, or I'm sorry, a song that we sing says it this way. Turn your eyes upon Jesus Look full in His wonderful face. And remember all the things I told you at the beginning? The writer of this song says, with your suffering and your sorrow and your sin and your shame, this is what the writer writes. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Because of the persistence of Mary wanting to find Jesus, what happens? It says that she met Jesus face to face. And that can happen not just for Mary, but for you and I as well. But how do we know if we have that kind of faith this morning? How do we know if we have that kind of complete understanding? It results in an outcome. My third and final point today is that our deliverance from sin results in sharing with others. Results in sharing with others. The only way you will know if you're properly understanding the Easter story is by looking at what happens as a result. Peter and John didn't get it yet. And they head back home. But Mary encounters the risen Savior. And look at what it says in verses 16 through 18. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic. I think it's more Italian. Rabboni. Sounds Italian, doesn't it? Which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And verse 18 says, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen 
the Lord. And she told them that he had things, had said these things to her. Jesus meets Mary. And what does he say? Go and tell others about it. And that's exactly what she does. But what does she tell them? There's three things that I believe that were a part of her message. And they should be a part of our message as well. First of all, we see that it says that she spoke of the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of Christ. In verse 18, it says that she told the disciples that she had seen Jesus and that he was alive. That he had been risen just as he said. I will tell you, my friends, let us never, ever get away from allowing the resurrection to be on the tip of our tongues. Never allow this story of Easter to ever stop resonating in our hearts. Let us tell our friends and family as we gather around the ham at the dinner table today that it's not because of a bunny or a bunch of eggs or because of spring on the calendar, but it's because our Savior was dead, but now He is alive. It is because our sins were placed on the cross of Calvary, but we rejoice in the risen Savior who put away once and for all the penalty of sin and death. Mary told the disciples that Christ had been raised from the dead. Let us tell our friends and our co-workers and the people we work with and hang out with and do all the things together with, let us tell them about our Savior who has been raised from the dead. But there's another part of the Easter story, not per se within the text, and that is that the Easter story speaks of our spiritual reversal. Our spiritual reversal. In a matter of a couple verses, Mary goes from sadness to celebration. Peter later on goes from being ashamed, one who would deny his involvement with Jesus Christ to a young servant girl, just a matter of 50 days later would stand before thousands of adult men and women and say, this Jesus, whom was crucified, God raised him from the dead, and he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. What happened to Peter? What happened to John, who looked and saw And he didn't know what to make of it. But we know that this John, who lived well into the first, uh, to the end of the first century, it tells us that he was exiled. Why? Why would a man go and be exiled on the island of Patmos? For what? A lie? Or did he in fact see Jesus Christ? Tradition tells us in history that the apostles, many of them died horrific deaths for a lie. For a lunatic or for their Lord, who they saw raised from the grave. Church history tells us that God has taken worthless sinners, people that have done vile and wicked things, and changed them to make them new and living creatures. The writer of Amazing Grace was a man who hated colored people, who was a slave trader, And God grabbed a hold of him and did a spiritual reversal on that man. And he penned the words, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I am a result. And I hope that this place would be filled with testimonies of spiritual reversals. Not because of our own fixing up of ourselves and cleaning ourselves up. But because Christ died on the cross and rose from the grave been a spiritual reversal. And finally, we see that not only is there a spiritual reversal and the resurrection of Christ is spoken of, but look at what it says. It talks about a new relationship. 
Look at verse 17 and I'll close it out. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I am not yet returned to the Father. But look at what he says. Go instead to my brothers. You underline, underline that because that is the first time and the only time that Jesus speaks of other human beings as brothers. The relationship has changed. The resurrection changed. Why? Because we are no longer just uh, saved by Jesus. But now because of the resurrection, we're brothers. The Bible says we're co-heirs with Christ as a result of the resurrection. But look at what he says. And tell them I am returning to my father. And he says, and your father to my God and to your God. Understand this. When you look to the tomb and you celebrate full of faith and trust that Christ did as He said, not only are you a brother of Christ, but you have the same relationship with the Father as the Son does. You begin to see that your relationship with the Father, He says, to my Father and to yours, to my God and to your God. As I close out this message this morning, I want to ask you the question, Have you gone to that empty room? And have you looked and have you believed? Because if you haven't and you walk out of this place, and then if it's your day to stand before the Almighty Judge of the world, God the Father, what will you say about the empty grave? What will you say? The grave is the power that took away, uh, the, the rising from the grave is the power that Jesus had to take away our sin that was shed on the blood of Calvary's cross. And what will you do with it? I want every head to bow and every eye to close. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as we close out our service in song. And I want to finish up by asking this question. Have you gone to the empty tomb? And have you believed? Is there someone out there today who has gone and there's doubts and there's questions in your mind? And you say, I'm not sure. I want to tell you that the first step to that is the step of asking Christ into your life. And to say, I believe. And you can do that this morning. And this isn't just your fire insurance to get you out of hell. But this is a beginning of a relationship. If we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead, the Bible says, we will be saved. All you have to do in the quietness of your heart, not moving around or doing else, is saying, Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross of Calvary. I'm a sinner and in need of a Savior. I turn away from my sin. And I follow you beginning today. That you'll be the Lord of my life. That you'll be the Savior of my sins. And as a result, I too will not remain in the grave. And because of this, I have a new relationship with you and the Father in heaven. If you prayed that, and there's no magic to those words, you have begun a relationship with God this morning. And if you prayed that, I, I want to just be able to pray for you. And as every head is bowed, every eye is closed, is there anyone here today who would just raise their hand and say, I've begun a relationship with Jesus Christ this morning. If you'd raise your hand, I want to pray for you. If you'd raise that hand and say, I'm beginning this new life with Jesus. My life will never be the same again.
Heavenly Father, we come before you. And Lord, I pray that you'll work in the hearts of each person here today. That Lord, we will come to a saving knowledge of your Son. Because the Bible says that you loved us so much that you sent your Son to die. And whoever believes in Jesus will not perish, but have everlasting life. This is the hope we profess. This is the hope that we declare that we have a Savior who has gone before us. And His name is Jesus. And He sits victoriously at the right hand of the Father. And that's whom we praise this morning. And who we will praise for eternity in heaven. We love you, Jesus. And we thank you for the cross. And we praise you for the empty tomb. In your name, we praise. Amen.